And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is December the 15th. 349th day of the year. 16 days remain to the year's over with. All days and observances. National Lemon Cupcake Day. National Wear Your Pearls Day. National Ugly Christmas Sweater Day. National Underdog Day. National Cat Herders Day. Hanukkah. Blue Christmas. Gift of Sight Month. Operation Santa Paws. Worldwide Food Service Safety Month. National Write a Business Plan Month. National Tie Month. National Pearl uh, Pear Month and Universal Human Rights Month. Well, with all that's going on, certainly your human rights is the last anybody's thinking about right now. Five thirty-three, the Vandalic War. Byzantine General Belisarius defeats the Vandals, commanded by King Glamour, at the Battle of Tricamarum. 687, Pope Sergius I is elected as a compromise between United Popes Pascal and Theodore. The, uh, for those that, and I've been asked several times, an anti-pope is a person who claims to be the Bishop of Rome and leader of the Catholic Church in opposition to the legitimately elected pope. Between the 3rd and mid-15th century, anti-popes were supported by factions within the church itself as well as secular rulers. And sometimes it was hard to distinguish which of the two claimants should be called Pope and which anti-Pope, as is the case of Pope Leo VIII and Pope Benedict V. Well, Hippolytus of Rome is commonly considered to be the earliest anti-Pope. He headed a separate group within the Church of Rome against Pope Calixtus I. Now, he was reconciled to Calixtus' uh, second successor, Pope uh, Pontian, and both he and Pontian are honored as saints by the Catholic Church with a shared feast day on August 13th. 1025, Constantine VIII becomes sole emperor of the Byzantine Empire, 63 years after being crowned co-emperor. The uh, Byzantine Empire, for those that are not familiar, is the Eastern Roman Empire. 1161, Jin Song Wars. Military officers conspire against the emperor, Wen Yan Yang of the Jin Dynasty, after a military defeat at the Battle of uh, Kaishi and assassinate the emperor at his camp. Which just goes to show you can't trust anybody. 1167, Sicilian uh, counselor Stephen Duperche moves the royal court to Messina to prevent a rebellion. 1256, Mongol forces under Halugu enter and dismantle the Nazari Ismaili stronghold at Alamut Castle in present-day Iran. The Nazari Ismaili stronghold was the stronghold of the cult of the assassins. And uh, Halagu Khan thought they had um, decided to assassinate him, so he just went in and destroyed the organization. 
and they did it as part of their offensive on Islamic Southwest Asia. 1270, the Nazari Ismaili garrison of Gurdka, Persia, surrendered after 17 years of to the Mongols. 1467, Stephen III of Moldavia defeats uh, Matthias Corvinus of Hungary with Matthias uh, being injured thrice at the Battle of uh, Thaia. 1546, the town of Akinas uh, is founded by King Gustav Vasa of Sweden. 1651, Castle Coronet in Guernsey, the last stronghold that has supported the king in the Third English Civil War, surrenders. The uh, it was a large island castle in Guernsey, and former tidal island, also known as Cornet Rock or Castile Rock, or Castle Rock. Its importance as a was as a defense, not only of the island but also of the roadstead. 1859, it became part of one of the breakwaters of the Guernsey Main Harbor, St. Peter Ports Harbor. Well. Seventeen seventy eight American Revolutionary War British and French fleets clash at the Battle of Saint Lucia. Seventeen ninety one United States Bill of Rights becomes law and ratified by the Virginia General Assembly. Eighteen thirty six the US Patent Office building in Washington DC nearly burns to the ground, destroyed all ninety nine hundred and fifty seven patents issued by the federal government up to that date, as well as seven thousand related patent models. 1864, American Civil War. Battle in Nashville begins in Nashville, Tennessee. Ends the following day with the destruction of the Confederate Army of Tennessee as a fighting force by the Union Army of the Cumberland. Um, one of the generals of the Confederate Army said that was the first time he ever saw a Confederate Army get routed. And they were. 1869, the short-lived Republic of Izo was proclaimed in the Izo area of Japan. It's the first attempt to establish a democracy in Japan. 1871, 16-year-old telegraphist Ella Stewart keys and sends the first telegraph message from Arizona Territory at the Desiree Telephone, a Telegraph Company office in uh, Pipe Springs. 1890, Papa Lakota leader Sitting Bull was killed at, on Standing Rock Indian Reservation. Um, he was killed by a um, member of the Native American police. Hmm. Now what's happened? My system just went kablooey. Okay, the killing of Sitting Bull led to the Wounded Knee Massacre. 1893, Symphony Number no. 9 from the New World, also known as the New World Symphony, by Antonin Devort, premieres in a public afternoon rehearsal at Carnegie Hall in New York City. Followed by a concert premiere on the evening of December 16th. 1899, British Army forces are defeated at the Battle of Corinzo in Natal, South Africa. That's the third and final battle fought during the Black Week of the Second Boer War. 
1903, Italian-American food cart vendor Italo Marcioni receives a U.S. patent for inventing a machine that uh, makes ice cream cones. 1905, the Pushkin House was established in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia. It was designed to preserve the cultural heritage of Alexander Pushkin. 1906, London Underground. Great Northern Piccadilly and Brompton Railway opens up on this date. 1914. Um, World War I, Serbian Army recaptures Belgrade from the invading Austro-Hungarian Army. 1914, a gas explosion in Mitsubishi Hojo uh, coal mine in Kyushu, Japan, kills eight, uh, 687. 1917, World War I, an armistice between Russia and the Central Powers is signed on this date. 1939, Gone with the Wind, the highest inflation-adjusted grossing film, receives its premiere at those Grand Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. 1941, the Holocaust in Ukraine. German troops murder over 15,000 Jews in uh, Trubitsky Yar, a uh, ravine southeast of the city of Kharkiv. 1942, World War II, the Battle of Mount Austin. The Galloping Horse and the Seahorse uh, begins during the Guadalcanal campaign. The 1943, World War II, the Battle of Arme begins uh, during the New Britain campaign. 1944, World War II, a single-engine UC-64A Norseman airplane carrying U.S. Army Air Force's Major Glenn Miller is lost on a flight over the English Channel. It vanished, and there's not been a sign of it to this day. 1945, occupation of Japan and the Shinto Directive. General Douglas... Well, they did it again. General Douglas MacArthur orders that Shinto be abolished as the state religion of Japan. Uh, 1960, Richard Pavlik is arrested for plotting to assassinate President-elect John F. Kennedy. 1960, King Marinda of Nepal suspends the country's constitution, dissolves parliament, dismisses the cabinet, and imposes direct rule. 1961, Adolf Eichmann is sentenced to death after being found guilty by an Israeli court of 15 criminal charges, including charges of crimes against humanity, crimes against the Jewish people, and membership of an outlawed organization. 1965, Project Gemini. Gemini 6A, crewed by Wallace Shara and Thomas Stafford, is launched from Cape Kennedy, Florida. Four minutes later, it achieves the first space rendezvous with Gemini 7. 1970, Soviet spacecraft Venera 7 successfully lands on Venus. First successful soft landing on another planet that we know of. 1973, John Paul Getty III, grandson of American billionaire J. Paul Getty, is found alive in Naples, Italy. He's been kidnapped by an Italian gang on July 10th. 
1973, the American Psychiatric Association votes 13 to nothing to remove homosexuality from its official list of psychiatric disorders. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And so it began, people. 1978, U.S. President Jimmy the Peanut Man Carter announces the U.S. will recognize the People's Republic of China and several diplomatic relations with the Republic of China, or Taiwan. 1981, suicide car bombing targeting the Iraqi embassy in Beirut, Lebanon, levels levels the embassy and Killed 61 people, including Iraq's ambassador to Lebanon. The attacks considered the first modern suicide bombing. 1989, second optional protocol to the International Covenant on the Civil and Political Rights relating to the abolition of capital punishment is adopted. Um... 1993, the Troubles, the Downing Street Declaration is issued by Prime Minister, uh, British Prime Minister John Major and Irish uh, Taoish Albert Reynolds. Nineteen ninety-seven, Kazakhstan Airlines Flight thirty-one eighty-three crashes in the desert near Sarihai, United Arab Emirates, carrying eighty-five. 2003rd reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant shut down. 2001, the Leaning Tower of Pisa reopens after 11 years and $27 million spent to stabilize it without fixing its famous lean. 2005, introduction of the Lockheed Martin F-22 Raptor to the United States Air Force Active Service took place on this date. 2010, a boat carrying 90 asylum seekers crashes into rocks off the coast of Christmas Island, Australia. Killed 48 people. 2013, the South Sudanese Civil War begins when opposition leaders Dr. Rick Machar and Pagan Amun and Rebecca Nanderdeen vote to boycott the meeting of the National Liberation Council at uh, Nayakuran. Got to get those names right. 2014, gunman Man Manis takes 18 hostages inside a cafe at uh, in Martin Place for 16 hours in Sydney. Manis and two hostages are killed when the police raid the cafe the next morning. 2017, a 6.5 earthquake strikes the Indonesian island of Java in the city of Tasikmalaya, resulting in four deaths. Well... As I've said many times, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. And certainly we have gone the extra mile in repeating the bad things of history. Alrighty. We've been talking about the other Oswald. Now, turns out Evidence that has come to light since um, 1963. Most of it is a result of Jim Garrison's famous uh, case. Established that Thornley, Oswald, Ferry, Shaw, Bannister, and all the rest of the characters in New Orleans are actually agents of the CIA, managed by CIA employees like Fred Christman, William Goodday, and maybe even David Antley Phillips himself. Now, according to Thornley, 
Police suspected that both Oswald and himself must have been put under surveillance by the Office of Naval Intelligence when they were serving in the Marine Corps in Natsugi, Japan. But like any good piece of propaganda, there's always a kernel of tooth, ensuring that the reader can never decipher which aspects of the story are true and which are make-believe is exactly the point. Thornley, and for some reason, Lee Harvey Oswald was set up at an early period, probably about 1960, to be a patsy to be somebody that they could point to as the bad guy. And the first attempt to assassinate Kennedy was actually in 1960, when he became president-elect. Now, according to Thornley, in his discussions with uh, Garrison and Thornley and all the rest of the folks we've been discussing were actually card-carrying agents of the Central Intelligence Agency, contract uh, agents or full-time agents, still agents. And that being the case, every single statement, pro-communist, anti-U.S., was part of a script. In fact, he even said, it seems odd to me, the Office of Naval Intelligence could find no reference to Oswald in its files in 63, nor any to Thornley in 75, when he recently made a Freedom of Information request. He thinks it's possible somebody in the Naval Intelligence bureaucracy may have seen to it the files uh, were misplaced or stolen or just destroyed. And you're going to say, well, that can't happen in the federal government. I had some letters that were sent to me by the Army in 1983. They never got to me, and they vanished. And I kept being assured, because I'd heard rumors about them, I kept being assured that uh, they didn't exist until a Freedom of Information Act request I filed uh, about the year 2000 resulted in a box of over a thousand pages of non-existent files being sent to me and in the box was those three letters now it's interesting that Thornley's told Garrison in certain terms there should be files on both him and Oswald when somebody's accused but they're truly innocent the the immediate action reaction is you want to anger, distrust, or repulsion. And that was never Thornley's reaction to being pulled into Garrison's investigation. In fact, he went on to try to implicate everybody he'd ever met. And he proceeded to speculate to Garrison that if the Naval Intelligence was keeping an eye on him and if they'd assigned him to babysit, then that man must have been uh, Bud Simcoe and his immediate superior is Lieutenant Ballantyne, and together they maintained the top-secret security and classified files for the squadron. So again, we're talking about people involved with Office of Naval Intelligence. Now, interestingly enough, when investigators tried to run down this Bud Simcoe, 
uh, very little can be found. Now, go on Google and check it out, and you'll find that there's half a dozen Bud Simcoe's, all with various military backgrounds, none of which appear to match the timeline given by Thornley. Now, Thornley painted the picture of a world where everybody he knows is seemingly connected to an elaborate conspiracy that ultimately lead to the assassination of John Kennedy. But Kerry Thornley claimed that he was just an innocent bystander, drug into it against his will. According to Thornley, he was discharged from Marines at the end of October 1960. Came back to the States where he said he lived in Southern California until February 61. Said during that time he'd been actively writing and promoting his novel, The Outer Warriors, which was actually about Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, it's important to note that Thornley began to write this book more than 30 months before the assassination. So, you gotta wonder how bright it was to take part in the setup of a patsy in the assassination of the president, and you write a book about it three years before it happens. Well, that says to me that this was a long-running plan. Now, Thornley arrived in New Orleans, according to him, in February 61. And it's significant as it loosely coincides with the start of a long series of events involving Oswald impersonators. The incident at Bolton Ford, um, which occurred January 20, 1961, was the first of about a hundred incidents involving people claiming to be Lee Harvey Oswald who were not. And that's just what was documented in the files of Jim Garrison. And many of these incidents occurred at times when Oswald was provably in the Soviet Union. And many of these incidents had Kerry Thornley being identified by witnesses as Oswald. Well... Thornley claims about April of 1961 he met a man named Roderick Slim Brooks. Now, you can't believe anything Thornley really says without corroboration, but not that what he says is a lie, but you can't take it at face value. And this Brooks character that uh, Thornley referred to uh, familiarly with as Slim appears on the surface to be CIA. That is, if he ever existed. And it's Slim who will pull Thornley into a web of intrigue and assassination, or at least that's what Thornley said. And Thornley allegedly met Slim while working for the Foster Awning Company. Now, Thornley allegedly engaged Slim on the topic of Japan and the fact that he had just returned from Atsugi. Going to Thornley, Slim suggested they spend the afternoon together. He said Slim was a fascinating, colorful figure, suffering from a bad case of TB, but previously had worked as a seaman, a lumberman, a U.S. Marshal in Alaska. Reading Thornley's over-the-top uh, affidavit, the um, it's clear 
that he was presenting a picture that he wanted uh, attention paid to doesn't mean it was true. Now, according to what the one they said, this slam introduced him to Gary Kirsten. Uh, according to a number of uh, things that you can research about Thorne, I mean, he believes Slim to actually be uh, Jerry Milton Brooks. and Gary Kirsten to actually be E. Howard Hunt of Watergate Plumber fame. Now, it's only alleged that on the evening in 1962, Slim and Kirsten struck up a theoretical conversation with him about assassinating the president. Going to Thornley, he suggested the use of a poison dart. And Thornley allegedly believed this was all in good fun and couldn't be taken seriously. Only after the assassination, Thornley realized that his association with Oswald and the conversations he had with Slim and Kirsten may have been connected. He may have been drawn into the plot. Well, somewhere in all this rambling by Thornley was a kernel of truth. There is um, the same time that Thornley is keeping company with Slim and Kirsten during the summer of 61, he also said he was associated with Guy Bannister. Thornley said he had finished most of his book, Idle Warrior, and he hired a young lady by the name of Joyce Talley he had to type it. And Miss Talley allegedly liked the Thornley's book so much. She introduced him to one of her college professors at Louisiana State University in New Orleans. The professor's name was Martin McCullough. Um, that name is later modified to be Martin McAuliffe, who um, had been the public relations manager for Sergio Arcasia Smith during his time with the FRD. And it was McAuliffe that introduced him to Guy Bannister. The um, now Garrison didn't believe everything that Thornley had to say, but it is clear from what Thornley said, which has been confirmed by others that there were a number of phony Lee Harvey Oswalds running around New Orleans. And after Bannister's death, Fair Flavor Cuba Committee leaflets are found in his office. Um, and interestingly enough, the book, of course, revolves around Oswald. And Oswald was... Um, playing his part of being a communist sympathizer with the assistance of Bannister.
Well, based on this, Garrison started to piece together the relationship that existed between Thornleaf Ferry and Guy Bannister. And he clearly realized how implausible it was for Bannister and Thornley to have been meeting under the auspices of discussing Thornley's novel about Oswald. It was clear to him and everybody else that the, that the relationship with Thornley and Bannister, uh, Bannister having been ONI and Thornley having been a Marine, that's not a stretch of the imagination to figure out that uh, Bannister was reporting back to somebody. Now, Garrison pointed out that Fair play for Cuba Committee flowers were found in Bannister's office after he died. And Garrison's file on Thornley begins with the FBI report on Douglas Jones and Jones Printing. Garrison must have known by this time that it was Kelly Thor Carrie Thornley who had the flowers printed, not Oswald. So it's easy to use a name when you don't have to show identification. What Oswald didn't figure out at that point was it Oswald ever had anything to do with Guy Bannister or the Cuban operation being run out of that building? And all the alleged sightings of Oswald that had her around 544 Camp Street were actually sightings of Kerry Thornley, who kept identifying himself as Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, during the time that Thornley was doing all this and writing his book and what have you, Oswald was in Russia. So there are a lot of folks who believe that Thornley's 50-plus page affidavit he gave to Garrison was actually a confession. Assuming you can believe what he said. I mean, if you are trying to prove yourself innocent of being involved, and at this point in time, Garrison thought he was involved, you'd more likely to say, I didn't do it, talk to my lawyer, rather than go into detail and draw all these different uh, relationships into question. Day after Christmas 1961, Slim Brooks told Thornley he had a Christmas present for him. He told him that uh, Thornley had ridden in Carlos Marcello's car. Brooks had been driving Thornley around in a barred black car for a few days. And he implied it belonged to Carlos Marcello himself. Now Garrison caught the name drop. He circled Marcello's name and drew an arrow to his notes in the upper margin. Here we begin sliding into the CIA's line since the late 60s. And it's not really clear what Garrison meant by all this. There are those that believe the CIA attempted to deflect all the blame for the assassination onto the mafia. And of course, Thornley's response was par for the course. Now, Garrison, by all reports, didn't buy most of what uh, Thornley was trying to sell. Now, when Carrie Thornley testified at the grand jury, 
in support of Clay Shaw. He denied ever knowing David Ferry. However, in his written affidavit, he talks about going to parties at Ferry's house. But he didn't remember it until after he testified to the grand jury. Thornley places that party uh, in the summer of 62. Now, according to Thornley, he arrived in New Orleans in February 61. By the summer of 61, he's hanging out with Jessica Luck and Slim Brooks and Gary Kirsten. During this time, he's approaching uh, completion of his book about Oswald. Now, why would he write a book about Lee Harvey Oswald? It's never been satisfactorily explained. Now, Thornley alleged no contact with Oswald since 1959 at El Toro. In July of 1961, Joyce Talley introduces Thornley to Martin McAuliffe, a professor at LSU and the PR man for Sergio Acacia's uh, FRD. Acacia's working out of Bannister's office at this point. Well, it's like all the dominoes are set up, so one leads to the next. Now, according to Garrison's notes, he said now Thornley has met Ferry as well as Bannister. And that's just the summer of 62. Now, Thornley confided in his affidavit uh, about a number of conversations they had with Brooks and Kirsten about assassinating the president. Now, I have to ask you, is that something you normally would find in idle conversation? Thornley conspired with Clay Shaw, David Ferry, and a cast of characters set up Oswald as a patsy, and they're ultimately responsible for pulling off the assassination of John Kennedy. But he explains away his involvement by continuing this story about being drawn into a plot to assassinate Kennedy. Thornley claimed that uh, Brooks and Kirsten were constantly pulling him into theoretical political conversations. It was allegedly prodded into responding to questions about killing the president. Well, now, sometimes you can tell a lot by the language that people use. And Garrison caught the key word in that uh, sentence right away. The... Uh, in saying that they sanitized an incident. That's an intelligence community phrase. I've not heard anybody else um, use it in that manner. Now, Garrison was correct, especially for that time period. Weren't sanitized in the context of information is purely the work of intelligence agencies. And Thornley continues to provide the most incriminating statements, almost as if he wants Garrison to know he's making everything up. And the conversations about killing Kennedy continue. The problem is, the 
Why did he want the attention to stay on him? You got a gung-ho DA trying to prosecute the murderers of the president, and here's a guy sitting there talking about the fact that he had all these discussions. Now, Thornley was a primary mover in the setup of Oswald, so his statements about setting up a communist uh, more confession than anything else. And then as far as Thornley's actual role in the assassination setup goes, his, the fact he closely matched Oswald in height and weight and build and demeanor allowed him to impersonate Oswald at various times over a number of years. But how far in advance do you impersonate somebody in order to loop him in? Now, Thornley had much more, apparently, freedom in decision-making other than just following orders. So he played a far more significant role in the engineering of the Oswald operation. And it would mean that Thornley wasn't simply an underling of Ferry or Clay Shaw, but he was actually probably on their same level. Well, two names appeared in the setup that shouldn't have been there. Adele and Osborne. Adele should actually be known by even the most casual of Kennedy enthusiasts as the alias Lee Harvey Oswald supposedly used to order the rifle and the communist propaganda that were sent to his P.O. box in Dallas. Ella Cadell was also the name that was forged by Marino and Oswald's selective service card. And the origin of this alias has always been subjected to, suspected to lie with a Marine in Oswald's unit named John Hindell. It's assumed by many Oswald simply adapted his fellow recruit's name, but this doesn't appear to be the case. In Hendel's affidavit to the Warren Commission, he confirms that while he was in the Marines, people did in fact call him Hydell, either because they read it wrong, mispronounced it, or just too lazy to say it right. And that would lead you to believe the case is closed and Oswald simply appropriated the name of his fellow soldier. And this appeared to be the case until you realize the circumstance and the significance of the second names used in the setup, Osborne. When Harold Weisberg, who was another investigator, showed Douglas Jones of Jones printing the 100 or so photos of suspects in hope of having identified the man he sold the Fair Flaper Cuba Committee flyers to, Jones picked out four pictures of Kerry Thornley. And the alias Thornley used for the print job was Leon Osborne. Now, that may seem like a mistake or maybe a variation of Oswald, but that's not the case. Mac Osborne was another Marine who had served with Oswald at Santa Ana and Marine Air Control Squadron Number 9. So now you've got the name of two of Oswald's fellow Marines being used in the setup with a direct link to Kerry Thornley at Jones Printing. There's not another person that we know of that would have been privy to this information. And since Oswald wasn't in on his own setup, that leaves Thornley to have been a primary architect of this mess. Mac Osborne was stationed with Oswald in Marine Air Control Squadron Number 9 at Santa Ana, California. Thornley was in Marine Air Control Squadron Number 1 at Osugi, Japan. So how could Thornley have been aware that roster Marines in Marine Air Control Squadron Number 9 if he was never there? He later said, I continued work on the Idle Warriors after I got out of the Marine Corps. Also continued a close relationship with one other Marine from 
um, the uh, Marine Air Control Squadron number nine and number one. This man struck up a friendship with me at the time I knew Oswald. You and I were then assigned overseas together and uh, squadron number one where our friendship continued. And that man is none other than the man that Thornley suspected of being his intelligence babysitter, the mysterious Bud Simcoe. Maybe the use of the name Leon Osborne at Jones Printing is prima facie evidence of the involvement of one of Thornley's handlers in the setup of Lee Harvey Oswald. But again, you come back to the question of why Oswald was selected. The name used at Jones Printing by Kerry Thornley and Leon Osborne connects to the alias Thornley was using when he interacted with Perry Russo at David Ferry's party. He called himself Leon Oswald. And many people try to use this uh, encounter between Oswald and Perry Russo's evidence that Oswald knew and associated with Ferry and Shaw and the crew. And that'd be true if this was, in fact, the Lee Harvey Oswald that was killed by Jack Ruby. But it wasn't. It was Kerry Thornley. Now, Perry Russo was a good witness. Harrison mishandled him, to say the least. For several of his interviews, he was pumped full of sodium pentothal, uh, truth serum, Rousseau's statements, even under the needle, are vindicated by the fact that he, like every good witness, provided details he wouldn't understand the significance of. He would have been unable to provide anything useful unless he was right where he said he was, interacting with people that he claimed to have seen. And his statements debunked the idea that Oswald was ever at this party. But they reinforced the idea it was Carolee Thornley in attendance. Now, Russo claimed that in his presence, Ferry, the man he kept referring to as Ferry's roommate, Leon Oswald, a tall, gray-haired, well-dressed man with white hair named Clem Bertrand, was a number of Cubans discussed how to go about killing the President of the United States. Now, there's no way that Oswald could have been at that party conspiring to commit a crime that would have ended up leaving him the patsy. The notion of discussing a plot in front of the patsy would always be ridiculous. Um... It only becomes logical if the Leon Oswald, referenced by Perry Russo, was the only person that could possibly be, and that was Kerry Thornley. At that point in time, it makes sense, because he's pointing the finger at Oswald. Well... There was an interviewer for Jim Garrison named Andrew Shambra. had a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald he had shown to Russo. And he asked him if the picture in, the person in the picture he showed resembled the Leon Oswald he met and was introduced to as Ferry's roommate. And Russo acknowledged the photo did resemble the man he identified as Leon. The problem is found in Russo's description, though. He said the roommate had a bushy beard and his hair was all messed up and he was extremely dirty. He said the picture we had showed him that morning was very, very close to Ferry's roommate, except maybe the guy was a little dirtier. And that person was clearly not Oswald. How many other people have shown up in the cast of characters in New Orleans that are associated with Ferry resemble Oswald or known to have had a bushy beard that can only be described as a beatnik? Well, there's only one, Carrie Thornley. And this wouldn't be the only time that Thornley would impersonate Oswald. 
Well, Oswald never went to Mexico City. That's been fairly well established. But the Mexico City story is an important part of the setup. It's meant to show that Oswald is still pursuing a communist agenda by attempting to gain entry into Cuba. And Thornley basically admitted he had been the, the man that went to the Cuban embassy. That's why they acknowledged that Thornley had traveled by bus to numerous states as well as Mexico City in 1963. This trip was allegedly in May. And in continuing this theme of confession that you find throughout Thornley's affidavit, when he discussed the timing of one of his many interactions with Slim and uh, Kirsten about assassinating the president, Thornley stated it could have transpired sometime shortly after my return to New Orleans from California, Mexico City in September of 63. Well, clearly Thornley's most recent trip to Mexico City didn't occur in May, but in September of 63, and that coincides with the dates that Perry Russo had last seen Leon Oswald at David Ferry's apartment. First time uh, was in, uh, on September 13th, 1963. Saw him again on September 16th. The last time he saw him was at Ferry's place sometime between September 20th and 25th. And he had shaved off his beard and only had a few days worth of whiskers, as Rousseau put it. Well, after impersonating Oswald in Mexico City, Thornley would again be identified as Oswald in Alice, Texas. Only this time he was in the company of a pregnant woman with a child. Well, at the same time, Kerry Thornley was making his way back from Mexico City on October 3rd. Dallas, uh, Oswald was in Dallas where he checked into the downtown YMCA. And that is well documented. The receipt for his stay was written on invoice M15593 and is marked Hulin Exhibit Number 7. It just allegedly returned from Mexico City where his return bus route is said to have crossed the border back into the U.S. at 1.35 in the morning. On October 4th, Oswald went job hunting and stayed the night at the Paines in Fort Worth. Now, now Oswald may have been at Paines that night, but Marina wasn't. She was with Carrie Thornley in Alice, Texas. According to David Reitzes, owner of the JFKOnline.com website, a man resembling Oswald was seen with a pregnant woman and a child numerous times between October 3rd and October 5th, 1963, in and around Alice, Texas. That's a small town off Route 44 near Corpus Christi that connects to the border town of Nuevo Laredo down Interstate 59. And Nuevo Laredo is where Oswald allegedly crossed back into the U.S., to sum it up, 14 witnesses believe they had seen or spoken to Lee Harvey Oswald in or near Alice, Texas, on or around the first week of October 1963, and several of them specifically specified October 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Many of them also said that Marina Oswald was with him. Another three said Oswald was roughly between the cities of Alice and Dallas around that same time. And some witnesses said he had a car. Several said he didn't. Two said he was trying to rent one. Now, the physical descriptions are problematic, though the witnesses seemed to have generally believed it was Lee and Marina Oswald they saw, sometimes with one or two very small children. 
Most notable of these incidents occurred at radio station KOPY. Oswald's alleged to have arrived at, at uh, KOPY at about 6 p.m. on October 3rd, 1963. He was allegedly looking for a job, but was told to return the next day when the manager was present. Half hour later, Oswald was seen at the BF Cafe in Freer, Texas, where he asked the waitress about any employment opportunities. Oswald was seen at the restaurant in the company of a woman who looked like Marina Oswald, who had in her care a child about the age of two. Some claimed that Marina had an infant with her. However, she wouldn't give birth to her second child, Rachel, for several more weeks. Now, according to KLPY station manager Lehman Stewart, Oswald arrived at the radio station about 1.30 p.m. when he was driving a battered 1953 model car. And there's no evidence in the world that Oswald ever owned or even driven a car other than a single driving lesson he got from Ruth Payne. The car was described as a 1952 or 53 old gray car, possibly a Dodge or a Plymouth. That vehicle description becomes relevant uh, when we discuss the eyewitnesses that a Tippett shooting that saw one of the perpetrators fleeing an older model 1950s gray Plymouth sedan. So at the end of the day... We've got a number of people who have been put in a position to identify Lee Harvey Oswald when Oswald wasn't there. And Marina helped to set the stage, so you have to wonder about her involvement. Now, Oswald had talked with Stewart when he came back to the radio station, as well as traffic manager Robert Janka. Both described Oswald as having worn a soiled white T-shirt, jeans, and had several days of unshaven stubble on his face. And they discussed with Oswald his recent trip to Mexico City and why he had stopped at the radio station. Oswald said he was just driving by and saw the station when he thought he might inquire about employment. Well, ask yourself why Thornley would plant seeds of Oswald seeking employment at a radio station. It doesn't really make any sense. Maybe the trip was somehow connected to Thornley's relationship with WSHO and WDSU, which Thornley opened in midst to having friends working at. I mean, for some unexplained reason, uh, radio stations keep popping up in the, the, the story that Thornley told. Now, both Jack and Stewart claimed Oswald's wife sat in the car the entire time they were talking to him. Oswald told him she couldn't speak English and after conversing with Oswald for a short time, they informed him they had no openings and he left. Now, Sonny Stewart called the FBI the day after the assassination, convinced he had spoken to the president's session on October 4th. He said the first time he saw Oswald's picture on TV, he recognized him, uh, but couldn't place where he knew him from. And when it finally hit him, he almost fell on the floor. Well, that's a clear example of how Thornley, despite being raggedy and unshaven, was still being identified as Oswald. And now to become a pattern of identifications of Lee Harvey Oswald, weeks and sometimes even months before people interacted with Thornley or William Seymour, came forward to, to authorities to claim to have interac interacted with Lee Harvey Oswald. And that was what was intended. Well, shortly after Thornley and Marina were seen in Alice, Texas, they were seen together again in Baton Rouge. 
Ms. Alvin McGee placed an ad in the local Baton Rouge newspaper notifying the public of her room for rent. She told Andrew Shambra that a man she now knows to have been Lee Harvey Oswald called her sometime in late October about that room and came to see her. She said Oswald arrived about 1 p.m., but she couldn't remember the exact date. Said Oswald was driving a light-colored station wagon, and his wife, who was holding a baby, was sitting in the front seat. She said it was a bassinet uh, visible in the back seat. Man got out of the car and introduced himself as Harvey Lee Oswald and proceeded to tell his life story to McGee, who seemed puzzled as to why he was volunteering so much information. Though McGee was married to a Russian girl and they'd had a child together. But around the apartment, I won't know if she had good locks on the apartment because they had a collection of guns she didn't want stolen. Even mentioned one of the guns at a telescopic site. She remembers not really knowing what a telescopic site was. Told her he was looking for a job in Baton Rouge. She recommended he try one of the coffee places in town since he was mentioned to her he'd already worked for a coffee company in New Orleans. He also, out of the blue, told her he was a Marxist and had to explain to her what a Marxist was. And as he left, he made one other odd statement that she never could figure out the the relevance. He said, I heard Kennedy's going to make a tour down to the southern states. She described Oswald as having worn a dark blue or gray jacket, medium-colored brown hair with thinning in the front. And she remembered that the woman, whom she believed to have been Marina, was wearing maternity clothes. Chamber noted in his report that Garrison McGee was shown a picture of Thornley, but claimed his face was too thin. Well, we do know for certain it was not Oswald. So I think, since we're running out of time, I want to make it clear that as far as we're concerned, we've made a strong case that there was more than one Lee Harvey Oswald running around. And the question becomes, who exactly was Lee Harvey Oswald? Um... To date, nobody's had an answer. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll see you back on Monday. when Once again, we'll be talking about the strange and the unusual. Until then, this is Ken Hutton for the Ken Hutton Show saying have a truly great weekend.